left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. It's not that I'm creating a bunker and, and going all cash and you know having my guns and ammo and food reserves ready. It's not that at all. But I am cognizant that we've been on an up cycle for a long, long time. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy, not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Brian Burke from Praxis Capital, and you are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm pleased today to have Dr. Ian Kurth with us. He is a partner in a private practice radiology group and a very experienced, active, and passive investor. He's involved in over 50 private placements in all of the asset classes that we usually talk about, multifamily, mobile home parks, self-storage, short-term rentals, venture capital, oil, gas, and crypto, which everyone wants to talk about, of course. He's a, been a guest speaker at our monthly left fielder meetings, and he was a speaker at our infielder meeting. And he's been a great friend to uh, left field investors, and I'm pleased to finally get him on the podcast. Ian, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thanks, Jim. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invite. Thank you for all that you've done building the left field investors platform. You're doing a great service, and I uh, really appreciate your efforts. So hopefully we have a great conversation here. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And the way we start out is I just like to hear your journey. I know that you're a, you're a doctor and a very experienced in, investor. So I'm curious, to how did you get into real estate? How did you get so focused on investing and creating wealth? Well, it's a long and circuitous journey, as many people have experienced as well, as you stated. So I, I grew up in the Midwest, pretty humble family. Father was a real estate investor. I observed his experiences in many different areas of real estate, everything from single families to multifamilies to development to the lending side. I was dragged into some of those actively managed projects. I was sweeping out after the construction crews left. I was slinging mud and drywall and so forth and, and realized that I wasn't very good at any of those endeavors, really didn't fit my personality. But there was a seed planted at that point. I recognized that many people have real estate in their portfolio. Many people make wealth in real estate. Many people hold wealth in real estate. And so there was always a seed germinating, but I took a different path. I was the first in my family to go into medicine. I ended up sacrificing my 20s, staring at white walls, 
trudging through various hospitals and, and medical facilities. I woke up out of that, joined a practice, been with the same practice since I, since I left training. And as many physicians figure out at some point, through all of that specialty training, through all that really expertise that you develop, there's really not too much in the form of financial education. And for better or for worse, we enjoy fairly healthy hourly wage or salary, however you want to put it, but we have to figure out how to invest that. Many people sort of delegate that to others and fall into the financial planning route, fall into the index fund route. I certainly was a victim of that at, at earlier in my journey. But ultimately, I kind of woke up to that. I had a, an awakening <laughs> one April where I was just figured out I had been nauseous on an annual basis enough. And I, I wanted to solve sort of the tax burden that I had been enduring for a number of years. And through that exploration, I really found alternative investments, real estate investments, many different mechanisms for asset protection, many different tax mitigation strategies, all of those kind of wove together into what has evolved into my portfolio and my education base currently. Well, that, that's interesting that kind of taxes got you there. A lot of people talk about the Purple Book or, you know, I got in there as an accidental landlord, but the taxes is a big issue because you know, when I was a financial advisor, one of the things we always said is that the biggest eroder of your wealth is tax. So it makes sense that that's what got you into real estate. Now, did you start with active and, and then transition to passive? Or have you always kind of been doing a little bit of both? Yeah, as I mentioned, that seed that germinated were kind of developed on some of the dinner conversations that my dad held. And, and I'd heard the term, you know, silent investor in the past. I'd heard the term, you know, many of the terms of real estate had, had sort of been germinating for a while. But I originally started my own real estate investing journey with a partnership with my father on an active investment. That's several properties that we still hold today. They're very doing very well for us. It's an integral part of my portfolio. But I realized that to do that well would require too much of my own time and that there are better professionals who have expertise in various niches of real estate. And while I do maintain a balance of actively managed real estate, which I do believe in for control purposes and flexibility purposes, the majority of my portfolio now is on the passive side. And so in order to access that realm, I had to sort of break out of the medical mindset and a, and sort of conventional mindset. And I had to begin to reach out to various networking group. I had to really bolster my own education base. I had to learn about these things. I had to figure it out. And ultimately I did. And currently I would say on the real estate side, it's probably two thirds, one thirds in terms of passive to active in my portfolio. Okay. So you had said, you know, it's better to find professionals to, and I've just sold almost all of my active stuff because I don't want to manage a property manager. I want an asset manager to handle that for me. And so I'm almost going all passive. But what you said is pretty interesting. You still have some active and you said it was for control and flexibility. Can you talk to us about what you mean by control and flexibility and why you still want that active real estate in your portfolio? Yeah, certainly. I think it's very important to recognize when you engage in a passive partnership that you are ceding control of your capital, meaning that you are giving up control of your capital. You're doing that for a purpose. You're doing that because you believe that the operators have a better skill set, they have a better deal flow, they have operational expertise, they have perhaps better access to financing. They can basically do the job better. But from your own perspective, you have to recognize that you're getting on the bus, you're not driving the bus, the bus may stop, the bus, bus may be, keep going, it may not be convenient for you. And you have to recognize that and sort of balance that out in your own portfolio. So 
you're sacrificing that illiquidity and that control for expectations of better return, expectations of certain maintenance of attributes of real estate that everyone enjoys, tax benefits and the like. But in terms of its place in your overall portfolio, you just need to recognize that there is loss of that control. Now, that can be mitigated in other ways. You don't necessarily have to have other active real estate entities, but you can manage that by either risk mitigation on the front end with diligence on the operators and really understanding the geographies and niches and, and projects that you're involved in. You can also mitigate that by having a healthy dose of liquidity on the other side of your portfolio so that if there is a disposition event that's not in your favor or convenient for you, or sometimes a pro forma changes due to market circumstances that might be out of your control, uh, case in point, coronavirus where you know distributions were stopped or you know expected timelines were extended, that you can sort of mitigate that with liquidity on the other side of your portfolio. And we've talked a lot about this in, in our infielders forum when you're talking about liquidity, because you know, you want to have enough liquidity for opportunities or think when things go bad, like you said, what what do you do with that liquidity? Where do you put it? Especially everyone's talking about inflation now, right? So whether that's transitory, as they say, or if it's permanent, keeping money in cash is uh, is going to cause you some problems because you're going to be losing money. So where, what do you do with that cash? Are there places that you can get a return? Where, where do you put it? I don't know that I always subscribe to the mantra that you need to have a return on all of your capital. I think your capital needs to have a purpose, but it may not be a return. And so the purpose for me of that liquidity is insurance on life, making sure that if something were to happen to your family or uh, circumstances were to change or a problem were to arise that money could solve, you could solve that. And you weren't outsmarted by chasing yield and at the sacrifice of liquidity. That's one thing. The second thing is, it's okay, I believe, to have a bit of a cash drag to sacrifice in the short term some potential yield for the opportunity to engage in other projects that might come along and you not have an opportunity cost of missing those. And so that's the purpose of it. The purpose is to insure against life and the purpose is for an opportunity fund. So you don't necessarily always have to have a mathlete's dream of the substantial yield on every single dollar that you have. So that's my perspective. Now to your question, can you find yield in this environment? It's pretty tough. It's pretty tough. You put your money in the bank and you're not going to find anything there. You can do some high cash value insurance products that might help. You can do some municipal bond stuff. You can do some digital currencies, but all of those carry some risk. And so you have to ask yourself, what is the purpose of this capital? And am I okay with accepting the risk that's associated with that marginal yield that you might uh, gain on it? Yeah, I think that's really, really well said that, you know, you don't need yield on every dollar. And I think I find myself and others in my community I've talked to chasing yield on everything because you don't want just that idle cash sitting there. But everything has to have a purpose, right? And if your idle cash is sitting there for some of the purposes you talked, insurance and and other things, then, you know, it makes sense. And you can give up yield there because you're giving up yield other places when it's it's all risk reward balance, right? So I think that's really well said. I want to back up just a minute. You were talking about active versus passive investments. And which do you find, and this is a really general question, but if it's a similar asset, are you sacrificing returns when you go passive rather than active? That's kind of the thing most people typically think is if you're active, you can get better returns. Do you find that's true or do you get similar returns from your passive stuff? If we're just looking at maybe single family or multifamily, residential, something like that. Well, I think I can only speak for myself, but in my personal experience in the near term, let's call it anywhere from one to five years, I get beat by the pros. 
if I have something that I'm holding indefinitely for beyond five years, five to 10 years, 15 years beyond, then that's the point where those returns might sort of equilibrate and for a variety of reasons. So I might be okay with sacrificing some of that short-term yield for that control and for the opportunity to extend my ownership of that if it suits what my intentions are at the time, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And you also mentioned that when you were getting into this, some networking or some groups had had helped you out. And I know you're very active in uh, Buck Joffrey's group, the Wealth Formula group, as, as I am as well. Can you talk a little bit about the power of networking or community and if that's helped you, how has it helped you become a better investor? Absolutely. I believe that that is really an important component of one's own education is to surround themselves with individuals who have a common goal, have common interests, and with a mixture of people who are a half to full to several steps ahead in their own sort of experience journey, and as well as having people who are maybe behind you a little bit that you can help out and teach. And having that sort of diverse conversation is a really good way I've found to really solidify the fundamentals from an educational standpoint and to pass along the pearls that you may have stumbled across along that journey. It's certainly one really good way to confirm that you understand a concept is to try and teach it to someone. And so if you can help somebody else out, you not only help them, but you also perhaps expose some biases that you might hold or some blind spots that you might have. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that more. You know, the last 18 months with Left Field Investors, you know, when I started the group, I thought, you know, I was going to be educating everybody. And man, I'm 10 times better at investing than I was then just because all the stuff that I've learned from everybody, not just helping beginners, but learning from people like you and other people who've been it, in it for a while and just soaking up all that knowledge. And so I think that the power of the network or the community, that's really what advances all of us in this kind of stuff, I think. Absolutely. Okay. So I want to talk about the favorite topic really for everybody in this world, I think, is how do you find and vet a sponsor? And I know you dig really deep into some of this stuff. So can you give us just some ideas of where you find them? Because I've, I've kind of stopped looking and now I look to my network to refer people that they already know. Warm referrals, I think, are really the way to go for me. But do you have any other ideas? And then once you find them, how do you make sure they're the right fit for you? Yeah, no, that's a great comment. It's a great observation. I've been similar. So in, in the beginning, kind of my approach was to do my best, knowing that I would be fallible in many ways and, and to accept some of those errors in terms of choosing various syndicators or operators to partner with. And I took the approach that I would kind of go wide and sample many different ice creams, if you will. And then over the course of time, you have an opportunity to see how they perform, to see how they communicate whether they follow through, what's their transparency, and you get your own personal experience with that. At the same time, in, in sort of parallel, you're continuing to network. So you're getting validation from your own peers who are working perhaps with similar operators or introducing you to new operators. And I found though that recently, for a variety of reasons, not only from my own experience, but from market conditions, I found myself going more narrow and deep. So I have more comfort with several few select operators and I am consolidating with them more because I like their approach. I like their performance. I like where they sit in terms of what my opinion of the market cycle is. And I'm okay with that. Right now, for me, it's not the time to try all 36 flavors. Yeah. And I, I think I, I have a similar approach because 
you know, in the first few years that I'm doing this, like you, I want to invest with everybody who qualifies, right, from my process and have a do the minimum with a lot of different people. And then once I'm kind of where you are, which is a few years ahead of me, and I've had a few exits and I've seen a few more deals and, and have a little bit more experience, then I'm going to pick in different asset classes, maybe a few sponsors of each and go bigger with them, right? So while you're doing that, if you're just with a few sponsors, how do you diversify? Because I, I look at it like diversify by market and asset class. But also, when I first jumped in, I was all in with, with one sponsor. And then I realized that's probably not the right way to do it. So how, how do you look at diversification within those three metrics and then any other kind of diversification you might do? Yeah, I think those are great comments on approaches to diversification. Certainly, I think it's appropriate to diversify if you're comfortable amongst several select niches. Within those, then geography, geographical diversification is appropriate. Then within that, you're going to have potentially operators. And within those operators, you're obviously going to have different projects. And perhaps some of those projects are also going to have diversification on timelines, diversification on their business plan within those projects, and perhaps even diversification on the debt structure or financing structure. So the timelines of those, one might be three-year interest only, some of them might be seven, some might be 15-year. And so that to me is sort of the Swiss cheese approach, the layered Swiss cheese, where each one has its holes, but if you kind of layer it on top of each other, you have a block of cheese and there's no holes in it. Whether that's right or wrong, that's kind of how I've approached the diversification. So you know, you mentioned in the intro that I have quite a few interests. And so that's a result. That's the outcome of that approach. Certainly is not the easiest approach. A lot of people will pick one and go all in and move on to their next project. But at least at this point in my journey, that resonates most with my objectives and my risk tolerance and sort of the outcomes I'm looking for. So for the sponsors that you're mostly investing with now, you've had experience with them. Those are the few that you're, you're, you said you're digging deep on, narrow and, and deep. So can you talk about maybe before that when you're, or if now if you're introduced to a new sponsor, even if it's a recommendation from someone that you already know, like, and trust, what's the qualification process or what are you looking for? And maybe what's something that if you see it, you're like, nope, not moving any further, if there is that. And, and I don't know if I have that or not, but just kind of how do you qualify a new sponsor? Well, I think you hit on something there that the longer you're in this, the more deals you've been exposed to, the more operators you've been in touch with, the easier it is to say, nope, the easier it is to say, I'm not interested, or that is, that doesn't fit my, what I'm looking for. And it's okay to allow those things to go on. It, it's fine. It's, it's very easy to get into deals. Sometimes it's very difficult to get out of those. And so having that type of perspective and awareness that there's another deal down the, you know, right around the corner, it's okay to pass. And, and this isn't the deal of a lifetime because the deal of a lifetime is just around the corner. So just having that perspective, I think is, is useful. And then in order to vet a new sponsor right now, I certainly don't have a desire nor feel an obligation to receive sort of cold call solicitation. You know, a warm body introduction is almost a requirement now to have somebody else who has the type of experience that I have with my own portfolio, they have themselves, they can say, yeah, I've been with them for X number of years. These are the deals I've been in. This is the type of people they are. I have met them. I understand their business plan. I can explain it to you. And if all of that sort of fits with what I might be looking for, then I would pursue it. But I'm much more selective in one acknowledging objective I'm trying to solve for in my own portfolio. And if it doesn't meet that at the time, I'm okay with just saying no and letting it go. 
I think that's one of the most valuable lessons to learn as an investor in this space is there are other syndicators out there. There are more deals coming. So you don't have to feel like I got to jump in with this syndicator because they called me or they sent me a deal. So I have to invest in it. And it takes a while to really figure that out, right? Because if you would have asked me a year ago, do I have all the best sponsors in, you know, in my back pocket? I've been like, yeah, I got them. I got them all. And you know, now some of those I don't even invest with anymore because I found people that I think are better. So you really have to realize there is a ton out there and this isn't put all your money in as quick as you can. It's be measured, be careful and do some due diligence. Now you mentioned the market cycle. So and I can see you already smiling. This is a great question, right? What's going to happen in the next five years? I have no idea. Is, man. That, is that an easy one? I have no idea. And because I say that, and I say that with humility, the way that I'm sort of approaching particularly illiquid investments currently is one of the primary things I am aware of is the structure of the deal and the timeline of the deal. I'm not interested in getting into a 10-year deal right now. I'm not interested in even beyond that. Five-year deals even right now are something that I pause on because we're sort of in unprecedented times. There's a lot of things that across the arc of history, we don't have a ton to sort of compare to. So to me, it just feels a little bit uncertain. It's not that I'm creating a bunker and, and going all cash and you know having my guns and ammo and food reserves ready. It's not that at all. But I am cognizant that we've been on an up cycle for a long, long time. And there is some changes in the market that just in my own sort of experience and my own study of history is it creates a little uncertainty. And so I'm just aware of not committing in an illiquid format for too long. Hey, left fielders, this is Julian McClurkin. When I'm not on the court with the Harlem Globetrotters, I'm the chief storyteller for Tribe Vest. Now, you might be thinking, why would Tribe Vest hire a Globetrotter? (laughs) Well, through my travels around the world, I've met so many amazing people and heard their incredible stories. And it's no different at TribeVest. My job is to share the stories of people investing together as a group, as a tribe. TribeVest allows groups to pool their capital, set up their LLCs and bank accounts, help with operating agreements, funding rounds, and so much more. Whether you're investing with other dads from your kid's preschool class or getting into real estate syndications with people around the country like LFI infielder Brian Pawnell, TribeVest helps them all make it happen. If you want to hear more about stories about TribeVest's customers, just check out TribeVest's YouTube channel. And if you're already ready to start investing as a group, head on over to TribeVest.com today. So what does that mean when you're thinking about asset classes then? You know, I've heard some other investors who've been doing this for a long time also say they're looking for shorter term investments. So they're doing maybe ATMs and and things like that. So what are those asset classes that you're focusing on now that have the shorter time frame affiliated with them? I'm not so sure that it's asset class specific, but it might be the structure within the asset class. And so just if you take something that's fairly understandable for most people, just the multifamily sector, there are many people who would love to have just a coupon clipping type of investment where you just set it and forget it. And every every month, I'm going to get my you know 8% or whatever annualized. But those are really tough to come by. And who's to say that 8% is going to be satisfactory in 10 years? I don't know. And to find a a deal like that right now is really, really challenging. And so if you take that same asset class and sort of compress that timeline and say, okay, what can I do in that asset class 
to take advantage of the current market conditions, which are kind of obscene right now in terms of the rent spikes that are going on? How can I access that in a more conservative time frame? How can I get my money back as quickly as possible? De-risk myself. How can I seek out pro formas that are that are scheduling it out two to five years instead of ten to fifteen years? And so those are the type of things. And also, I want to sort of point out that it's not just what the pro forma says, but it's the operator who can execute on that. I mean, ultimately, that's the key is like they have to execute on it. They can tell you that that's what they're going to do, but their track record needs to, to substantiate that, in my opinion. So is there a difference then if, you know, because I don't have a W-2. I know you're, you're a doctor, so you're not as worried, I would imagine, about cash flow as, as I am. So my thought was when I first started investing in these things, I was going all in on appreciation deals, forcing equity, right? And then I'm like, wait, well, hold on a second. I got to, you know, feed the kids and things like that. So I need cash flow. But now I'm thinking, you know, if you want that short tail, you could do some of those quick turnaround forced equity type things. And if you do them, a few of those every year for three years, right, then you're starting to get the cash flow back. So that could be an alternative cash flow strategy in this in thinking in the short term market. Does that make sense? That's absolutely right. I think you can structure it that way. Now, I will uh, hit pause and just say, I hear a lot of people who are looking for that cash flow to cover the cost of living. And if we sort of reflect back on our earlier conversation with the liquidity part of that, you don't necessarily have to have that cash flow on a scheduled basis if you have a liquidity chunk, right? You can have 5, 10 years of liquidity if you wanted to, where that if whatever strategy you have for cash flow doesn't play out, you're okay. And that's what I'm sort of at this point in the cycle, and certainly with people who are new to the space, to just recognize. I'm not being judgmental or dogmatic about it, but just recognize that things change. We should all take a lesson from COVID that everybody who was waiting for that check and that check stops and the rents stop coming in. And what do you do? If you were so smart into grabbing all of the potential yield and then now you can't pay for your groceries, something is not right. And so just recognizing that potential and solving for it if you can prior to that. So for me, that's where that liquidity side really comes into play. And if and when I get to the point where I am out of a W-2 existence and I'm living off my investments, that is how I'm structuring myself so that I have X number of years of current living expenses in reserve. And if it really gets rough, you certainly can tailor your, your living expenses that is an extreme example. And that's assuming that every single one of your investments stops, which we're likely going to be in have bigger problems if that actually occurs in the economy. But if you just solve for that, then at least for myself, I would sleep better at night. Yeah. And I, th- I think that's a great way to look at it because, you know, every person is in a different situation, right? You're people want to get rid of the W2. That's like the holy grail. But then once you get there, you got to think, okay, Now I can't, I have to have more cash reserves because just like you said, COVID, whatever, something else happens. So you really have to be thinking of all of that so that you're protected. And then if you do have a W-2, maybe you need less cash, but you also got to think, well, what happens if something happens to my W-2 and my investments? Because as you said, when things go bad, they don't generally just go bad in this one little small spot, right? It could affect you more broadly. So I think that's a really great way to look at it. I want to ask you, so we talked about how do you vet a new sponsor but I'm also seeing you know, new asset classes coming out, or maybe they're not new, but just ones I hadn't heard of. One recently was a debt validation fund that came out that was interesting. So when you find a new asset class or you hear about one, how do you vet it or how do you evaluate it to say, 
hey, maybe this is something I want to get into? Well, if presented with something like that, I would really need to understand it and be able to unpack it and figure out what the sequence is on it and what the moving parts are so that I could better understand what the risk elements are, first of all. And then I would need to compare whether my expected yield on that is can substantiate the risk that I would incur. And taking all that into account, I would need to compare it to something that I have validated, have vetted, and I have confidence, and I already have sort of a systematic way to pursue and would need to be pretty compelling in that comparison model for me to move forward with it. I don't invest for excitement. I invest to produce results and to be as confident that I have minimized risk, accentuated potential rewards. I don't engage in things necessarily to be braggadocious about it or to have a stimulating conversation or to try to compel other people to do that. I'm investing for a result. And if that result carries too much risk, either on my part, because I don't understand it, or it's being marketed as being non-correlated, but when you unpack it, it actually is correlated. That's where I would say, man. Yeah, no, I think that that's a, that's a great way to look at it. And it's actually a great transition because, you know, you said you don't invest for excitement. So of course, naturally, the next thing I'm going to bring up is Bitcoin, because I know that you have spent a lot of time researching understanding. And I know this isn't real estate, and we usually talk about mostly real estate on here. But I know that you are really knowledgeable about Bitcoin. So I'm joking about the excitement part. But can you talk about what made you think, okay, I'm going to research and look into Bitcoin. And then once you did, what did you find out? Yeah, Bitcoin is a really interesting concept. And I started learning about the space in about 2017 and had really absolutely no idea what it was, what its use case proposition was, how people valued it, what sort of impact it might have, how it was structured so that it is unique in terms of its structure. But one of the ways that I forced myself to learn about it was to invest money in it and to follow it and to endure the volatility that's associated with it and to sort of force myself into going down innumerable rabbit holes. And I was trying to tally it up. I've spent hundreds and hundreds of hours studying Bitcoin, various elements of it. And each time, what I'm looking for is somebody who has a really educated background and says that it won't work. That's what I'm seeking, frankly. And I haven't found it. I know that there's a lot of sound bites out there of fear and uncertainty and doubt and so forth. But most of the time, when challenged on those opinions, the people that are making those are either parroting those comments or don't have a, a deep level of understanding. And so that process for me has built a level of conviction that this is a, a sort of a once in a lifetime transformation of value. It's effectively the dematerialization and the digitization of value in an algorithmic way that is decentralized. And I'm kind of throwing these, these adjectives out there, but they're really important. And to understand each component of that is the key really to understanding its value proposition and to see how this asset class, in my opinion, is here to stay. And that while it seems risky to many people because their understanding is not to a level of where they feel comfortable sort of pursuing it, I feel like there is such an asymmetric play here where, yes, you can lose your money. Yes, you can lose, theoretically, you can lose all your money. But that is the risk and the reward on the total addressable market that the upside to it, to me, is substantial. And for a portion of my portfolio, I felt 
that at this point in time and at the point in Bitcoin's evolution and its stage of adoption, it was right for our portfolio. I certainly can't summarize Bitcoin here in a, in a short conversation, but if I can advocate one thing, it's that people do explore it, do a deep dive on it, understand it to a point where you can honestly say to yourself, I understand this and I choose not to. And if you can come to that conclusion where I understand it and I, I seek to invest in it, or I understand it and I seek not to, then you have done yourself a favor, I think, at this point in the evolution of Bitcoin. And why Bitcoin and not Ether or Dogecoin or whatever else? You know, I know there's some that are, are real and some that are just kind of, I guess, spoofs. But what makes Bitcoin different than the others? So, yeah, we share the same opinion that there's Bitcoin, there's everything else. It's not to say that everything else doesn't have value. I think there are projects that will evolve, that will have a technological advancement and will some way serve a purpose. Blockchain technology is, is really important. It is a, a big disruptor. And in some way, the technology, technology doesn't go backwards, it goes forwards. And this technology will continue to adapt and find use cases. And within the thousands of coins and projects and so forth in everything but Bitcoin, things will bubble up and they may find their way. They may outperform from a price standpoint of Bitcoin. That's okay. But to me, the value proposition of Bitcoin is that it is a decentralized storage of value that is algorithmic and it is immutable in its, in its essence. And it doesn't care about what we think of it. Anybody else thinks of it, it is it does its thing. And it, it, every 10 minutes, it's a new block, uh, TikTok, and it just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And it is sort of like new forms of financial value is being converted into it. And that substantiates it. And the way that it's set up with proof of work and with the node validators and the investors and the software engineers and all of those balance elements and the game theory that's associated with it, I think it just is unique. It has tried to be mimicked. There are certainly projects that are trying to duplicate, but the circumstances at which it evolved originally I think are incredibly difficult to repeat. So you, you said it's a, it's a storage of value. So I get that. Are the other coins maybe that might be successful less a storage of value or monetary and more like here's a specific project that this coin accomplishes, like putting value on assets inside a video game or, or something like that? So I, I don't want to dig too deep and in, in get really in the weeds here. But is that kind of it where Bitcoin stands apart because it's the storage of value and these other ones, if you find them and there's a project that makes sense, then it won't necessarily be money or whatever we think of Bitcoin storage of value wise. It might just be a project that works and it uses the blockchain. And so that's what makes it valuable. I think one way to think of it is a, it's a sort of an egalitarian way to angel invest. And typically in, in angel investments, you are you acknowledge that there's a substantial risk involved with it. your investment could go to zero, it could go to the moon if you find a unicorn, but most of those investments are illiquid. Whereas in this realm, it's similar in that there are centralized projects, meaning that there are a core group of development engineers who are trying to accomplish a goal and they are involving others and, and incorporating that capital towards that end. And you have an opportunity to participate that in a very early stage if you choose to, or some more intermediate or potentially even a late stage with your capital and have that capital remain liquid. 
And there are likely trends where all of these individual products or projects will be consolidated. There's even theories out there that most of these will eventually end up as a level two or level three on top of Bitcoin. And so all of that, I don't know how to predict. I do know that the entire space is, I feel it's incredibly bullish in terms of its overall sort of trajectory over the next several years. I myself recognize that I'm not a trader. I don't go into this for sh- looking for short-term gains. When people ask me about Bitcoin, I do try to advocate for them to look into it. And if they choose to participate and invest in Bitcoin, I try to set expectations where if you invest in it, be prepared to stay in it for at least four years. Four years, And through that process, you are going to endure fantastic highs as the price goes up. You're going to really inoculate yourself with the lows because they will come. There will be substantial and violent downswings. But if you look back four years from when you originally invested, over the course of its history, you can't find a time period where you weren't up. And most of the time, it's substantially up. It's, it's basically doubled in price value every year for 11 years. Now, that won't continue indefinitely. I think this is an opportunity for many people to front run a lot of big money. It's kind of a unique opportunity in that sense. And at some point, though, there will be more institutional money. There will be insurance company investments. There will be sovereign nation, more sovereign nation investments. The opportunity for the digital land grab that's currently available, most people can potentially afford one Bitcoin. That may float away. At some point, that price will become very challenging to meet for that one digital Bitcoin. At some point in the future, you won't be able to grab that opportunity. So I see it as sort of an opportunity for a digital land grab in a scarce asset that, in my opinion, will be here for foreseeable future. And what do you think about governments, the US government minting their own coins or somehow regulating Bitcoin in a way that takes some of the value away from it? Do you, do you see any, I mean, I, uh, certainly there's some risk government interference. But how, how do you see that when you're investing in Bitcoin? From what I understand, right now, Bitcoin has been validated by a lot of the regulators for at least the US and many other countries. It has been deemed as property. So it has sort of a taxable behavior that is associated with other things we have properties. And that has pros and cons. There's no doubt that there is still substantial risk. And most of that risk right now is regulatory risk in the environment that we live in. So it could be taxed to an oblivion. It could be extremely uncomfortable from a government standpoint to hold Bitcoin. You know, there's all kinds of nuanced hammers or penalties that could be endured from a regulatory standpoint. But I don't think that those are substantial enough to stop Bitcoin. And it could certainly slow its adoption. But I think it's my opinion. Again, this is just my opinion. And I think it's here to stay. And at some point, there will be uh, competitive forces that will mitigate any sort of uh, draconian uh, actions like that. And what I mean by that is if an environment is hostile to Bitcoin, it's a competitive advantage for another environment to be accommodating. And that will force regulate that across jurisdictions. And so we've talked about real estate, we've talked about cash, and we've talked about Bitcoin. So the not the final question, but the almost final question would be, how do we figure out how much to allocate to each? And I know this is an impossible question, but just kind of your thoughts on on how someone goes about trying to figure out, okay, how much do I put in each bucket? And are there other buckets I need to be putting something into? It's a great question. I think that question really distilled down is a question of your own competence and confidence in particular areas. 
And so if somebody has no understanding, no financial understanding, no awareness of Bitcoin, I wouldn't necessarily tell them to put anything substantial in it until they get to that particular level. Now, there are people who are 100% Bitcoin and they have done the work. They've endured years and years of ups and downs. They exquisitely understand not only the native software, but the sort of game theory potential of it. And that's their decision to go 100% Bitcoin. I'm not there yet. And so for me, I understand real estate. I understand Bitcoin. I understand cash. I understand life insurance. I understand some other sort of more esoteric investments in in startups and private equity and so forth. And so my weighting for my own portfolio is based on my own education and what particular need or sort of use case for my portfolio I'm trying to solve for. And that's how it's evolved. If somebody were starting out, I would make sure that they fundamentally have a strong education in a particular area and recognize to the best of their ability what sort of risks are associated with it and how they might solve for sort of worst case scenarios should those risks manifest. Yeah, I think I think that's well said because it, it's so individual, right? And I think it is really important what you said is to focus on what you know or educate yourself so then you know something and then in, invest in those things. And And if you are just starting out, you know, you're going to have to go, you can't do it all at once, right? You might throw a few dollars here into, into Bitcoin or something like that, but you're, you're really going to need to educate yourself on each individual thing, jump into that one, and then take the time to do the next. So that, that makes sense to yeah. me. Not to cut you off there, but, th- but that also is part of my own sort of reluctance in exploring the thousands of altcoins. There's a few that I'll play with, but I, you know, I don't have the time or bandwidth to really do the necessary diligence on those projects to invest in a meaningful way. Now, somebody else who has no interest in real estate, no interest in stocks, no interest, and, and is 22 years old and a computer science background, man, they can do some real damage if they focus in on that stuff. But again, your own circumstances will dictate what you become involved in. Right. And I, I completely agree with that. And, you know, I'm, I'm mostly in, into Bitcoin and, and I have a, a few other little things here or there just because I hear somebody say something about it. I read up on it. I'm like, oh, I'll give that a shot, you know, because they're, and that's like the angel investing. It's pure speculation, right? I, I mean, I put 500 bucks into one and it turned into 5,000. I'm like, I think I'm a hero, you know, but the next one, the 500 bucks is gone. So I think there's, like you said earlier, you know, investing isn't supposed to be exciting or, or you shouldn't make it exciting. And for me, that's true. But then there's the 5% of the fun money where, yeah, I'm shooting for the moon. I'm, that's where I get the excitement, right? 95% is boring, just trying to create some wealth for, for our family. And then I have 5% where I'm just hoping, you know, to, to get that unicorn and, and get a 10x or 100x and, and then pat myself on the back. <laughs> yeah, no, I, th- I think it's well said. And in fact, I, you know, I might be misquoting this, but I believe that I saw that if you had a portfolio of 99% cash, 1% Bitcoin, over a five-year span, you would out, outperform the S&P. So like, <laughs> that's pretty boring, really. You know, like yeah. sitting all in cash and just having a little bit of crypto. But, you know, that's not to say that that's what's going to happen moving forward. But it goes to say, like, there's all kinds of different ways you can approach this. Yeah. Well, hey, th- this has been a fantastic conversation. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, the last question I ask is, what's a, a great podcast or two that you listen to, um, real estate or anything else? Well, I am a podcast junkie. I find that it's a great medium for me to learn about different topics, to learn about different people, to learn about... And it's sort of convenient for me with my own sort of lifespan. So I'll give you a couple that probably you may not have had offered on this particular show. So I listen to Jocko podcast frequently. I think that's a terrific 
sort of study into human nature and leadership principles. And his story is very compelling. Two that I listen to pretty regularly now are We Study Billionaires. We listen to the Wednesday show on, on Bitcoin. And then My First Million, which is a pretty interesting sort of spitballing type of conversation about a couple of VC guys who you know had exits and, and now are trying to decide how to invest. And then All In, which is a podcast that for billionaires who are venture capitalists as well. And, and so they have discussions on current events and investing topics. And so those aren't real estate centric. They do touch on investing to a certain extent. Some of it is mindset. Some of it is just opening your awareness to the possibility that you can do pretty much anything if you want to. And I think that type of mindset serves people well, particularly in the investing realm to know that you can be your own worst enemy, but you can also be your best advocate and you can accomplish a lot of things without yourself getting in your way. Right. Well, those are great. You know, it's funny that the Jocko one, someone else just recommended that. That was the first time I'd heard of it. And the last two you mentioned, I had never heard of those. So I'll definitely check those out. And, and I do like the we, we Study Billionaires. That's a good one as well. So thank you for those. That's fantastic. Sure. Well, Ian, it's, it's been great having you on the podcast. This was super informative and we really appreciate it. And we hope to do it again sometime soon. Jim, thanks again for the invite. This is a lot of fun. And uh, appreciate again, all that you do with Left Field Investors. Keep it up. Thank you, sir. I feel so fortunate to have been able to have that long conversation with Ian. I love talking to him. He is such a thoughtful guy. And man, does he know his stuff. It's interesting, you know, how people start. There's a lot of people that start with the Purple Book, Robert Kiyosaki. You know, there's people like me that start as an accidental landlord. And Ian started out, uh, he was searching for a solution to his tax problem, right? With a with a W-2, he had a tax issue and, and he found alternative investments was a way to uh, minimize tax. So that's how he got into it. He's a passive investor, but he still has some active stuff because he wants some control and flexibility. He's real thoughtful in that. He recognizes that passive investing, you trade control, but you get a professional asset manager. And so having some active allows him to keep some of that control in case he needs to liquidate and he has something under his own portfolio of control. So that's that makes sense to me. I really liked what he was talking about liquidity. You know, he gave me permission to have some cash. You don't have to have a return for all of your capital. If you get anything out of this, that's it. You don't have to fight for return on all of your capital. All of your capital needs a purpose, as he said. Sometimes you sacrifice yield for opportunity. Sometimes you sacrifice it for protection or insurance. So I really, really like that because I find that a lot of us are trying so hard to find yield and you can't have a dollar of cash because of inflation. But you know, sometimes you just have that cash for opportunity and emergencies. It makes complete sense. So getting that permission makes me feel better. I also like it, you know, it's okay to say no to a sponsor or deal. That should seem obvious, but you know, when you start getting these deals and you start getting sponsors, you just feel like, hey, I have to pull the trigger. But you know what? The next one's just around the corner. Don't give in to the pressure. And he talked about Bitcoin. And again, powerful. He spent a lot of hours researching this. He hasn't found anyone who spent considerable time educating themselves about Bitcoin that has come out and said, nope, not going to work. Don't want to be part of it. So the people that really put the effort in to learn about it, they all seem to support it. That's a powerful thing to think about. He also said, you know, the upside seems to exceed the downside for a portion of your portfolio. It makes sense to get into some Bitcoin. If you can get to a place where you understand it, then you can make a, a rational decision to invest or not to invest. And if you do choose to invest, his recommendation, just prepare to stay in it for four years. You'll live with the highs, you live with the lows, you know it's gonna bounce around and have some volatility. But this is a way to front run big money as institutions and nations get into it. So 
it might make sense for a portion of your portfolio. Man, every time I talk to Ian, I learn something new. As I said, he's smart, he's thoughtful. I'm so grateful to have him part of our left fielders community. So we will definitely have more conversations and we'll, we'll get him on the podcast again. But for now, we'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.